the book of 2 Corinthians this morning, so turn with me to the final chapter, chapter 13. If you need a Bible, put your hand in the air and just keep it in the air and the ushers will bring one to you. The title of today's message is Examine Yourself. It's such an essential uh, message that Paul brings and uh, we're going to kind of look at what all that means, but as always... We need to remember the context as we approach any text in the Bible and and understand why and what was happening and, and such so we can really take in the meaning of what Paul is writing here. And uh, so when we, we look at the context here, we know that there were some false teachers that had come on the scene that were kind of self-appointing themselves as apostles. They were trying to tear down the work that Paul was doing as an apostle. They were trying to tear down his authority over the church there in Corinth. Corinth. And and, and so as as these men were showing up and kind of causing the havoc that they were causing uh, for the Corinthians, Paul has now spent the last three chapters uh, defending his role as an apostle and uh, reaffirming his authority to speak in, into the, the believers' lives there in Corinth and, you know, really kind of showing his authority as an apostle given to him by the Lord. And so with all that in your mind, we can, we can approach this text here in chapter 13 and kind of keep the flow of what Paul is saying. In verse 1 we begin, it says, This will be the third time I am coming to you, By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. I have told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time. And now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all who and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. And so uh, Paul, again, asserting his authority as an apostle, and he gives this example to them about, you know, coming in the, the power and authority that God gave him. And he uses Jesus as an example, says he may appear to have been weak when they were crucifying, but really it was a demonstration of the power of God. And Paul's saying, you know, these, these guys might have accused me of being weak and you might think my letters are weak, but, but really there's power because God has called me to be this apostle to you. And, and so he says, 
I'm about to visit you the third time. Paul had established the church there in Corinth. Remember, the first time he was there, he spent 18 months with them, building them up and teaching them and, and such. And then there was a second visit between the first and second letter that he wrote to them. Paul had a short visit where he came and, and ministered to them. And now he says he's preparing for this third visit to come. And, and he quotes this passage out of Deuteronomy 19.15. Uh, the Deuteronomy passage says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So what, what is Paul trying to communicate here with this idea of having witnesses? And uh, Well, if you consider that they were making accusations against Paul, and, and against the calling that God had given to him and, and, and really kind of saying that, that Paul didn't have the authority to be able to, to discipline the church in Corinth. He didn't have the authority that he said he had and, and they were coming against him and they were trying to tear him down in the eyes of the Corinthian believers. He felt it was necessary to remind them that they're not to receive an accusation about him without two or three witnesses to validate what these people were saying. And, and simply um, said, if, if people, are, are, people show up trying to discredit me or discredit my ministry, you aren't to receive what they have to say unless there are witnesses that can validate it. And, and this, this was the message Paul was trying to communicate. You know, if you remember, uh, the, the church there in Corinth had a problem with divisions and, and people kind of pitting themselves against other people and aligning themselves under certain camps in the church. And so there were all these cliques and, and people problems and, and conflict going on among the believers there. If these folks would have followed the advice of Jesus, um, that's recorded for us in Matthew 18 about how to resolve conflict. There would have been a lot less conflict in Corinth, and it would have it would have corrected some of these uh, personality behaviors. And what what did Jesus say? I'm going to let you read Matthew 18 on your own later. But the basics are: if if somebody sins against you, or somebody does something that that you sense is against you. He says, you go to that person personally. You, you make a, a time to meet with that person. You don't take it to other people. You don't start, you know, taking these little corners of the room and whispering about somebody. You go to that person and you make the confrontation about whatever it is that you need to talk about. And if that doesn't work and it doesn't bring resolution to the issue, then you're to bring a witness or two with you, and it's not so you can gang up on a person. That's not the whole concept. The concept is to make sure that you're handling it biblically and that there's somebody that can witness the fact that things are done in a biblical manner. And if that isn't resolved, then and only then is when it's taken to a broader audience and and discipline might be, be brought. Now, the point is this not to take an issue about somebody to a large group of people and try to tear down their character. And, and that's what was happening with Paul. They were tearing down Paul's 
character and his position and his authority. And so the the flip side of that is if you're the person that they're coming to and they're trying to tear down somebody else, you're the one that has to stop that from happening. We talked last week about gossip and how we can shut gossip down. We can be the person to say, I don't want to hear that about this person. I don't want to have to filter that person through what you're telling me so you can stop it. And and so you don't buy into what what gossip would say about somebody. We need to realize, especially about somebody in a leadership position, the enemy wants to tear down the very work that God is doing through that person. And and so there there's a target on leaders and and the enemy wants to come in in any way that he possibly can and he will use weak Christians Non-Christians, he will do whatever he can to try to tear down the work that is happening. Because, check this out, if if he could really tear down the Apostle Paul, there's a ripple effect on how it could affect all of these different churches that Paul had established. If If he can take a leader out in our local assembly here, there's a ripple effect. It's a, it has an effect on many people's lives. And, and so there's, there's a tendency for the attack to come against leaders, and I think it's the enemy's tactic to try to stop the work. And, and so stories go around about this or that, and, and, and the people's tendency is to believe what they hear. And, and they'll even say, wow, you know, I would have never believed that about him. You know, I was an assistant pastor for many years at Calvary Chapel Phelan, and 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 Pastor Larry was not my bo- not only my boss, he was my friend, and and yet people would come to me, and and they think I would want to hear things about him, and so they would come to me to try to unload the latest gossip about the pastor. I was the wrong guy <laughs> to, to come to, by the way, but 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 this is what they would say. I would have never believed this about Larry. And I'd say, you know what? You shouldn't. <laughs> Maybe that would have been a clue to you that you're believing a lie. You know, this is just engineered by the enemy to try to tear down the work. Check out Paul's advice that he gave to Timothy about this matter. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 19, he says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Why would Paul say that? Well, because the tendency is to believe it before there's any facts to back it up. We want to believe the dirt about people. And so Paul's saying, you know what, there's a there's an enemy that hates what God is doing in the life of the local assembly. There in Corinth, here in Apple Valley, there's an enemy that hates that people are getting saved here and that, that there's a there's a church full of people that love the Lord that are trying to impact the community. So if he can take one of our leaders out, it'll stifle that work. And so Paul says, you know what, before you believe an accusation about a leader, make sure that there's two or three witnesses to back up that accusation. If there isn't, don't even don't even consider it because it's most likely engineered by the enemy. You know, many people get upset with a, 
with a pastor or a leader and they'll, they'll leave a church just based on a rumor or, or something that's an unsubstantiated rumor that, that has kind of gone around the church. And I, I'm just going to be honest with you right now. If, if I or one of the leaders at this church offend you in some way, don't get mad and leave. Come and talk to us. And I don't know how to say this any other way than to say it. You know, if somebody comes to you and they say, well, you know, Pastor Gary, I think he's mad all the time. I mean, if you look at his face, he's just so serious. And, you know, I've been at that church five years and I think he's been mad at me the whole time. Okay, that's a lie. (laughs) Okay, my face is my face. I can't help it. It just, it is the way it is. Um, and, and it's just like positioned that way. But if I'm mad at you, I will tell you I'm mad at you. So don't ever just sit there and wonder, I wonder if he's really mad at me today. I'm not mad at you unless I come to you and say, you know what? I'm mad at you. Okay, so we can kind of put that to rest and... But I can't tell you how many times I've heard that over the years. You know, I I was afraid of you for five years. I'd see you standing in the back just staring. It's like I have a lot on my mind and that's just the way my face goes when I think and I can't help it. I'm not mad at you. So don't believe it. Paul's exhortation to these Christians is not to receive an accusation against an elder or really anybody else for that matter unless there are witnesses to back up what's being said. doesn't mean that we're above accusation, but don't just believe the first thing you hear. There is a strategic ploy of the enemy to try to tear leaders down in order to disrupt the work. And, and so... He wrote this to them for a couple of reasons. First, being obvious, they had received accusations about him and and it was trying to discredit the work that he was doing for the Lord. The second, he had received word about them, most likely backed up by witnesses, that they were still in sin in this matter. And so he's writing to confront them about it. And so he warns them that he's going to be coming this third time and he will not spare them if they have not repented. Now, that's uh, the words I will not spare seem to be strong words. It just seems to be like Paul's really coming at them. But the situation in Corinth at the time called for strong leadership. Paul needed to handle this the way he was handling it to stop the flow of of trouble that was happening in the church. Paul needed to step up to the plate and deal with the things that needed attention in this church. And and so strong leadership was needed at that point. And so, you know, this is an awesome responsibility that God has given to pastors and leaders to find that, that balance between encouraging and bringing exhortation and and even discipline when needed. You know, much like Paul, I I know for me, I would much rather bring words of encouragement. That's my favorite thing to do is to, you know, seek to build up the saints and encourage them. But 
But if needed, I will sit down and deal with somebody if they're in sin just because of love for for God and love for them and love for what God is doing in our church and to stop the the poison that sin brings to the life of the church. I'll do that if I need to, but I, I would much rather spend my time bringing words of encouragement. So in in light of this, he goes on to say in verse 5, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified, but I trust that you will know that you are not disqualified. Now, I think it's interesting that that Paul urges these folks to examine themselves to see if they're truly in the faith. Why would Paul ask them to examine themselves? He's writing to a church. You would think these would be believers if he's writing to a church. And and so why why would he say examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith? Well, there are a couple of reasons for writing this. As uh, an apostle, Paul was concerned that every believer have the assurance that they are in the faith, that they they could know without a doubt that Jesus was their Savior and that that they were uh, they were in the faith. And you know, I can say as a pastor, that's a concern I have when when we gather together. My my hope and my my prayer is that that each of us, as we gather in this place, would have the full understanding, the full assurance that we're in Christ, because that's a powerful way for us to be able to live for Christ is to know our position in him. And and so um, if if you're a regular part of this church at Calvary Apple Valley, I, I want you to know for sure whether you're saved or you're not saved. And and so I, I give an opportunity regularly for people to receive Christ. And and some of you may sit here week after week, and when we get to the end of the message, you're like, wow, he does this every week. I'm saved already. What, what does this mean to me? It's like, well, the, first of all, there might be people here who aren't, and, and we want to give them an opportunity. But But there could be people sitting in this room for years who have never given their life to Christ. And as you examine your own heart and you examine really where you're at in Christ, that might be the day that you say, you know what, maybe I need to be sure today and I need to give my life to Christ. And and so I want you to know without a doubt that you're saved. And I, and I want you to know that so when the enemy comes against you, who the Scripture tells us is the father of lies, He's the ultimate deceiver who would want to keep us from understanding our position in Christ and, and you know, have that chipping little voice in your head that says you're really not saved. You're not good enough to be saved. You're, you know, all of those lies and distortions at the end. If, if we can examine our heart and we can know that we're in Christ, we can dispel those lies when they come. And, and so if you're a believer and you come here every week and, and, you wonder why, you know, why do we, we give that opportunity? Well, it's so we can know for sure. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning, I have the same concern for you. I, I would hope that, that you have 
a position in Christ already. And if if you don't, there'll be an opportunity at the end of the message for you to invite Jesus to be your Savior. I don't want anybody to be deceived to think that just showing up here every week to church is all that it takes to end up in heaven someday. That's a deception. Obviously, there were people in Corinth that believed they were saved and they were not, or Paul wouldn't have wrote this. And and so they, they thought because they were hanging out with believers in the church, that, that somehow that was enough. And, and yet Paul tells them to examine themselves. You know, many times people will show up at church and they have the appearance of being a Christian. And, you know, they, they know all of the right things to say and do. But, but this is the reality. We don't know for sure about other people. We don't know what is in the heart of other people. God's the only one that knows the intimate details of what takes place in my heart, what takes place in your heart. I mean, I can make an assessment. I can look at the fruit of people's lives and I can I can assess things, but I truly cannot know if another person is truly saved. However, God can know and that person can know. And, and so we're to examine our heart. We, we can know for sure about our own heart. We can know about our own position. So I want you to know for sure that Jesus is your Savior and that, that His promise of heaven is your promise. I want you to know without a doubt so you can endure the attacks of the enemy and the, the lies that he would want to chip away in your mind about. So at the same time, I know there are some that assume or presume that they're Christians and they're not. And so the instruction to us is to examine yourself. Even though our nature is to examine other people, that's our favorite thing to do. He says, examine yourself. Take your eyes off of the other people and examine yourself. You see, that that was the trouble in Corinth. They, They examined Paul based on what these liars were telling them, but they failed to examine themselves. You ever notice how easy it is to spot sin in other people? When when you get your sin sniffer out and you're and you're looking around and you're like, sinners, you know, these people, they like sin. And and it really your sin looks really ugly on other people. When you see somebody else doing it, it's like, man, that's horrible. How could they do that? And yet you hide the same sin in your own heart. It's easy for us to do it. I was reminded when I was studying this week of a... Remember when, when they brought the the woman caught in adultery to Jesus? And, you know, it was, you know the main part of the story, they were trying to test Jesus and, and to see what he would do, you know. And according to their law, she should be put to death. But there's something we, we read through and we often miss in that story that always kind of stands out to me. It says that Jesus was writing in the dirt. Now, we don't know exactly what he was writing, but, but I, I, I'm pretty convinced that as they were, they were like pointing out this woman's sin, Jesus was writing their sin in the dirt. And, 
Every time he wrote a sin down, another person would leave because they were guilty. And, and they can't fool Jesus. They can't, they can't get past him. And, and when it was all said and done, he looks around and it's just him and the woman. And he says, where are your accusers? They all bailed. Their sin was exposed. See, it's, it's easier to, to look at somebody else. It's our human nature. It's also our nature to want to measure ourselves against other people. And, and two things can happen with this. We can pick and choose depending on how we want to feel that day. Um, we can pick somebody who's really spiritual and measure ourselves, and, and we can just kind of walk away with our head hung low and say, you know, I should just eat worms and die, and, you know, I'm a horrible person. I'll never measure up, and, and we can do that. Or we can pick somebody that's struggling, and we can feel like we're superior. And we can think, you know what, I'm doing pretty good compared to so-and-so. But this is the deal. We're not supposed to measure against other people. In fact, Paul said it like this to the Galatians. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 3 and 4, he said, If anyone thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. In other words, he's saying, you know what? When you're going to measure yourself, don't measure yourself based on other people and how they're doing. Measure yourself based on how you're doing with what the Lord is doing in your life. How are you responding? That's the measurement. And and it, it takes that, you know, pitting ourselves against other people out of the equation. And so we take our eyes off of other people and examine your own life. Many of the problems and the divisions that were happening in Corinth could have been resolved had they heeded Paul's advice to examine themselves. Now, unfortunately, there are many people in churches across the country that hang out in church that that probably are not true believers in Jesus. And, and they just find comfort in this environment or, you know, it's a peaceful place to hang out and. And yet they're not saved. And even even though they they learn the language, they can speak Christianese fluently, and and they don't even need a translator anymore. They could just you know let it flow. They raise their hands when it's appropriate. They know when to stand in worship, when to clap, and they have it all all down pat. And yet they're not truly born again. They've never really surrendered their heart to the Lord. Now, this is the deal. People like that in the life of a church are the ones who typically cause problems because they're not filled with the Holy Spirit. They're not led by the Holy Spirit. And so they handle things very carnally, very much according to the flesh, and it brings problems. Alan Redpath said it like this, to examine yourself in fact, is to submit to examination and scrutiny of Jesus Christ the Lord, and this never to fix attention on sin but on Christ, and to ask him to reveal that in you which grieves his spirit, to ask him to give you grace that it might put away and cleanse, be put away and cleansed by his precious blood. Self-examination takes the chill away from your soul. It takes the hardness away from your heart. It takes the shadows away from your life. And it sets the prisoner free. 
Self-examination is, is not to tear us down and destroy us. It's to see that right position in Christ and to see those things that would keep us from that right position. So what is it that we're supposed to look for when examining ourselves? It's a great question. We are to examine our own lives to see if Jesus is in us, not just around us, not in the environment we're hanging, but is Christ in us? Is he directing our life? Someone once said people wear a cross around their neck signifying that they're a Christian, but the true Christian wears the cross inside their heart. It isn't just ornamental, it is in us, that work of the cross. Knowing that all of my sufficiency is in what Jesus did on the cross, that's what makes me a Christian. Not my actions and what I can produce, but what he has done. It's not how well I perform or how often I'm in this building, but it's how I have surrendered my life over to him and received his finished work on the cross for my salvation and let it have its full effect in my life. Folks, this is so fundamental, but so needed for our understanding. You know, when we look at our life apart from the cross, all we can see is unresolved sin. Apart from what Jesus did, there is nothing in us that can resolve the sin problem in our life. And sin is what separates us from God. The, the cross is what resolves that and brings relationship. See, when they put the nails in his hands and his feet, And Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was at that moment, all of your sin, my sin, the sin of the world was put upon Jesus. He was taking the penalty of our sin. When the blood poured from his hands and his feet, when the soldier shoved that spear in his side and that that perfect blood, that innocent blood poured out from his body, That's where our redemption is found. When he cried out from the cross, it is finished. Those words mean that that whatever was necessary for our sin to be forgiven had just taken place in that act on the cross. He meant it was finished. Everything necessary for salvation, your salvation, my salvation, was complete. And so we examine our own life in light of that message. Have we received what Christ has done on our behalf? It also tells us there's no value in any religious system. The value is in Christ. And that's why Jesus said that um, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There's no system man has developed. There's no joining a club and and being a part of it, salvation can be found in him and him alone. And that's how relationship with God is established. And so he's our sufficiency. He is our salvation. And so we examine ourselves to see if Jesus is where we find that hope for our own life. You know, you could fool me. 
I mean, you could you could have the appearance that everything's okay and and pull the wool over my eyes. But you can't fool yourself. And that's why you you're told to examine your own heart. And and in light of that message, it's important that we know and we have the assurance of our salvation. In fact, John wrote this in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 11 to 13. He says, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. That there's this assurance that we can have that is, it is so needed for us as Christians to have this assurance. It gives us the ability to continue in the faith. He who has Jesus knows that he has eternal life. Paul knew that he himself was born again without any doubt. Just in case they were to turn this question he was giving uh, them around on him, he says, and I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Paul Paul examined himself. He He's passed that same test. And he goes on in verse 7, he says this. Now I pray to God that you do no evil. Not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified, for we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. Now that you're examined, you have examined your own lives, you know that you're born again, that you have new life in Jesus, Paul's saying there, there should be a marked change in your life. There, there should be uh, an evidence or a change of direction. Remember last week we talked about climbing the grease pole that the, the Christian life is one that just should be continually moving forward, that you can't ever plateau at any place and say, I'm there, you know, I made it. We're, we're always growing. We're always moving forward. And, and so Paul was praying that these Corinthians believers wouldn't do anything wrong, but there would be evidence now even even if the the detractors that had come on the scene had poisoned their mind to think that Paul didn't have authority, he still wanted them to do the right thing. He wanted the evidence of Christ to be in them. That there would be a testimony in their life of Christ. And so it is for you and me. Others look at the change that is taking place and that Jesus is doing and, and, and because our eyes are on him and we're pursuing him and we're purposing in our heart to walk with him, there's an evidence in our life of Christ. We're trophies of his grace. And so Paul was able to say he, he could not do anything against the truth. He was striving for perfection. And then he goes on to verse 9. He says, For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong, and, and this also we pray that you may be made complete. Therefore, I write these things being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has, has given me for edification and not for destruction. 
Paul wasn't excited about having to bring rebuke to them. In fact, uh, his heart's desire and his prayer for them, as we're going to see in these next verses, is that they would strive for perfection, that they wouldn't make him come and, and be this authority, you know, that they would handle it before he got there. He would rather build them up than come against them. And so he ends with these final instructions. Verse 11. Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. And so final advice. You know, we come to the end of the letter and and the final advice is usually packed with something worth reading. And so uh, right away he says, be complete. If you have the New International Version that says aim for perfection, there should be a, a desire to press into the things of God. You know, if we've examined ourselves and we found that we are truly born again, we're in Christ. We shouldn't desire to walk in the sin that, that previously gripped our lives. That, that we should, um, even though we're prone to sin, and, and if we follow the natural course of our life, we're going to go right back to it. We have the purpose in our heart to live for Him. Peter said it like this in 1 Peter 3, verse 10 and 11. Now this is a, Peter's quoting uh, Psalm 34 here. He says, For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In other words, Peter's saying it's an act of your will to strive for that completeness or that perfection. It's an act of our will. It's a decision that we make. Because of all Christ has done in us and for us, we have to make it an act of our will now to live for him. Even though evil's often rewarded immediately and obedience may take some time for reward, so we, we tend to go for the immediate reaction, he's saying it should be our de- our, our desire to pursue the things of God, to um, seek the Lord, seek peace and pursue it. And so we purpose it in our heart. We point our lives toward the principles of God found in these scriptures. We pattern our life after the truths. And we allow the power of God to be at work in us and through us as we live out this Christian life. And then he says, be of one mind. As the church members examine themselves and allow the Spirit of God to change them, unity is a byproduct of that. I mean, if, if we're all seeking the Lord and we're, we're striving for that, that completeness or that perfection, we're all going the same direction. There's unity in that. There's, there's not this friction among the members of the body. We're to be of one mind, going the same direction with the same goals, 
What is that goal? Us reaching the world for Christ. If, if that's our goal and our desire, as we gather with various different gifts and we bring all those gifts together, we're, we're going the same direction in unity. And then he says, live in peace. It's an interesting subject, peace. This is what man, mankind is striving for. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or a non-Christian. There's this, there's this internal desire to have peace. And, and people outside of Christ seek to find that peace in various different ways. They'll try with alcohol, drugs, money, relationships. They'll try anything and everything to try to, to calm this life down that seems to confuse them and consume them. And yet they'll reject the simple answer of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the answer. Why? Because he is peace. And if, if we truly want peace, it's found in him. As we come to the end of this letter, a letter filled with challenge to the Corinthians and challenges to us as believers, what a, what a blessing to end with this benediction, peace. Peace is, is having a, a church family that, that you're, you're in unity with going the same direction. You're able to come together. You can, you can, Warmly greet one another with a holy kiss, as he says here. Now, and I just got to stop there for a minute to define this, okay? Because we're in a perverted society and it's weirdness all over. And some guys read that and they think, all right, man, this is my opportunity. Start lip-locking all the ladies. That's not what he's saying. So, at ease. If if you really want to know what he's talking about here, I mean, in it came out of the culture of the synagogue, and the men and women were separate. So if there was any holy kiss going on, it was men kissing men on the cheek and warmly greeting them and women doing the same. I had this experience in Russia. Uh, you know, I never envisioned myself being kissed by a man, so it was a really weird, startling kind of thing. But we were doing outreaches to the Russian police officers, and we'd been going there for... Uh, a couple of years, I think the third year we went, uh, the colonel of the academy, Nikolai Nikolaevich, real interesting guy. He thought I ran the police force of the United States, so he thought I had some kind of, you know, power over everything. And so he's always trying to warm up to me. And so we got off the, the train in Nizhny Novograd, and he walked up, and he grabs my face, and he, you know, traditional Russian thing. And I'm like, get away from me. But that's the kind of holy kiss that he's talking about. It's that warm greeting. Don't get any ideas, guys. It ain't going to happen today. <laughs> Some guy walked up after first service. He says, so that mean I can kiss you on the cheek? I said, not today, brother. See this face? Don't do it. So he ends with this blessing of grace and peace to the reader. And it's fitting. After, after all the instruction that he's given us in this letter, Paul has dissected the, the carnal lives of the Corinthian believers. He's challenged us in so many areas of our own walk with Christ and our own Christian life and church life and everything. It would be easy to look at all this and to kind of reflect over all of the teaching and think, man, I don't know if I can pull this off. 
that's a lot of stuff I got to be thinking about and a lot of things I have to do and I don't, I don't know if I can do it. In your own strength, in your own ability, I'll tell you this, you can't. But in the grace of God, you can. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can't do all things through Gary who strengthens me because I'll fall on my face. But in the grace of God, I can do all the things that he is encouraging me to do. And, and because my nature is prone to sin, I'm going to fail from time to time. You're going to fail from time to time. And it's that grace of God that, that picks us up and that sets us on the right course again so we can continue to honor God. And, and in that, we experience peace. That grace brings peace. Is your life in need of peace this morning? Jesus is the answer. Examine yourself. Are you in Christ? If you're not a believer, you can reject everything that I have said today. You have free will. God has given you free will. You, you could reject it. You can continue on and, and struggle and, and try to figure life out. However, the longer you wait to surrender your life to him, the more turmoil you're going to incur in your life. Now, maybe you're a Christian already and you think, well, what does this have to say to me? Well, examine yourself to know your position in Christ. And if you're in Christ, then you have that assurance. And, and you have the ability to deflect the lies of the enemy and any, any distortion he would try to bring into your mind about who you are and whose you are and your position to stand in faith. And once you're assured, then you strive to please him. You strive with everything in you for that completeness or that perfection. Now, maybe you've never asked Jesus to be your Savior. If that's the case, I'm, I'm glad you're here this morning to hear this message. The Lord wants you to know that today your sin can be forgiven, that you can have that hope of eternal life totally free from failure and sin that has gripped your life. But you have to take that step of faith. You have to put your trust and your hope in Jesus, the one who died in your place. I'm going to give you an opportunity in just a moment to pray and to ask Jesus to come into your life. If that's you and you want to know today for sure that you're saved, then you respond and you ask him to come in. And he's faithful to his word. He will come in and he will save you. Your sin will be forgiven. Jesus. 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 There's something about that name. It just resonates peace. Respond to him today. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for... Lord, the many lessons that we've learned in this book of 2 Corinthians and Lord, for this ending today that 
challenges us to examine our own position in you, Lord. And Father, I pray that as, as folks around this room really take to heart that challenge and examine their own heart. Lord, I pray those who have, have given their heart to you in past times, Lord, that you would refresh their understanding of what that means and their position in you, that you will deflect the lies of the enemy and all the distortions that he has brought against them. Lord, help them to live the victorious life that you have purpose for them to live, Lord. I just pray the chains of deception would be broken today. And Lord, I pray that if there's any among us that have never received salvation, that in that examination they find that they have never really accepted Jesus as Savior. I pray, Lord, that you would move upon their heart. I just want to give you that opportunity right now to pray and to ask Jesus to be your Savior. If that's you and you want to make that decision today, put your hand up in the air so I can see it. Bless you in the back. Anybody else? God bless you. All right. God bless you guys in the back. Anybody else? Today be that day that you say yes. All right, if you raised your hand, maybe you didn't get your hand in the air, you can still pray this prayer, believing it. I'm going to lead you in the prayer. You can just repeat it. There's no magic in the words. It's the faith behind it that saves you. So you believe these words as you pray, and the Bible says you'll be born again, a new creation in Christ. Heavenly Father, I confess to you today that I have sinned against you. And I know that sin has separated me from you. I believe today that Jesus died for me so that my sin can be removed. I put my faith and my trust in him as my Savior. And I know today that I'm a child of God. Thank you for saving me. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.